Recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up. Turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. We've made it to the one year mark. Yes, welcome to episode 52 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with, as usual, you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter. You can find that at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. And you can follow us on social, of course, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and YouTube and SoundCloud as well. And you get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. You know, you and I've been following the news and um, yeah, Ontario, the province where you are in Canada, looks to be getting just hit hard with COVID and now uh, some really severe restrictions. What's happening? Yeah, it's bad. (laughs) It's bad. Yeah. (laughs) Really, 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 really bad. It's in fact, it's it's um, this is as bad as it has been for the entirety of the pandemic in terms of uh, in terms of daily numbers. Um, Yeah, I mean, look. I, I, I mean, we could talk about this for for hours and hours about how the the province has completely just made a mess of this whole situation. Um, so, and have they it, closed the the the, ba- the borders between other provinces in Ontario? I think I read something about this. I don't know if that's ever been done before in Canada. Is that happening? Yeah, or? yeah. They 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 have they have placed some they've they placed restrictions at uh, at at borders. Now, this was done um, between Ontario and Quebec. That but they were imposed by the the Quebec government. This was done earlier on in the pandemic. But yeah, this is the first time we've seen um Ontario uh do this uh it, it's yeah I, I look I don't even know <laughs> yes. I don't even know what to say Cam it's just it's it's bad they've even closed yeah. down playgrounds which was sort of kind of the one sort of the one salvation we had um yeah. you know you can particularly off hours you know I mean quite often the playgrounds are completely empty you can take my daughter um let her run around well that's sort of off the table now as well it's yeah I mean this isn't not a good time it's not like last year when this was new and people thought you know this is going to be a short while we've got to buckle down here uh but but yeah I can I can hear the exhaustion and frustration in your voice and I I imagine uh there's many other people in the country that are that are kind of feeling the same way. Uh, it's just gotten quite bad there, and the fact that the the vaccine rollout has been so slow is kind of unforgivable. And I, I you know I bring that up because, you know we we can let the listeners know we're actually recording at our old previous time today. So it's Sunday evening in Hong Kong, uh, Sunday morning in in Toronto, and the reason is is my first uh, shot is tomorrow morning. I'm going to have to get up particularly early. And uh, head out to a a stadium, Ewan, that bears the name Queen Elizabeth II. It's the Queen Elizabeth II <laughs> Stadium, which is not very communist Chinese. So I wonder how long that name's going to be around. But uh, I'm really looking forward to to getting that first jab. Well, hey, uh, congratulations! That's fantastic. I'm very very happy for you. Um, and great. Hey, that that can be something we can celebrate along with our our one year anniversary yeah, how, sure. how, which is sort of hilarious right because if you think about it it's been a full year and here right we are off the top talking, we're talking about exactly the same <laughs> the know. same stuff the I same know. old same old i know i do want to ask though if any of our listeners have gotten the uh the pfizer biontech vaccine which is the one uh that i'm going to 
gonna I'm gonna get uh, tomorrow morning. It sounds like the first jab is fine, but the second one, uh, you know, I've now had close friends tell me this really kind of knocked them out. Um, you know, I, I had a, a dim sum lunch on on Saturday with you know a girl I used to work with, and she said she had to stay home from work. She was under her covers. She was shivering. She had a fever. And she felt horrible, but she said in 24 hours, it just magically went away and it was sudden. And, uh, you know, Larry, who's a friend of ours, you as well, we should get him on the show talking Bitcoin, but he had the same, the same situation. He thought he was going to be able to, uh, to go out and sail that afternoon, but he said he just felt awful. And, uh, I'm kind of, that part makes me leery. I mean, nobody likes feeling sick, but knowing that you're going to feel that way with a shot, is just such a bizarre feeling, but I guess it's just something we have to face. Well, yeah. And I mean, and that's not so uncommon with the flu shot as well, right? I mean, the general flu shot, you know, lots of people have have side effects that typically last about 24 hours, mm-hmm. chills, feeling feverish, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, look, I mean, um, the, the reality, of course, is that the pros far outweigh the cons yeah. um, by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, this is something that look, just do it. Just do it, right? Um, I will take a day under the covers shivering over COVID-19 any day. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. I understand you have quite the situation to bring up on the show today, Ewan, something that made international news. Yes. You know, you never you never want to see this kind of news coming from your country doing the rounds um, around the world. But nevertheless, that's that's what we're talking about today, Cam. Mm-hmm. Federal MP William William Amos, who he had a bit of a week. Uh, Actually, legs I, this story. I, just, I just want to stop you there just because I know we have a lot of listeners in the United States. So MP stands for member of parliament. <laughs> it is an elected official from a certain region in the country who, who sits in, uh, in parliament representing that region, kind of like a congressman, I guess. Um, but yeah, take it, take it away from there, Ewan. Yes. Sorry. I, I should have given the, the civics preamble. Thank you for that. Yeah. And this story has been nuts. In prepping for the show, Cam, I came across coverage in the U.S., the U.K., Europe. There is even a story in your neck of the woods, Cam, um, out, out of the South China Morning Post. Mm-hmm. Uh, TMZ picked it up. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel were cracking jokes on the subject. So what? what's the story? Here's the story. William Amos, he appeared completely naked uh, during an April 14 House of Commons Zoom conference call. Now, while our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, was taking questions, uh, Amos, from his office, proceeded to take off all of his clothes and get changed, not realizing that the camera on his laptop was on. All right. So after he changed into his suit and he sat down at his desk to uh, to watch the rest of, of question period, of course, he was bombarded with texts from colleagues advising him that his camera had been on. 
So setting this yeah. scene here a bit, like you said, I mean, he so question period is normally held in person where, you know, the opposition gets the chance to to question the, the prime minister and his party on government policy or whatever they whatever they wish. Obviously, with the pandemic, that's not happening in person. So this was done over over Zoom, which is kind of weird that they're using Zoom, but there's some security issues with that. Um, but anyway, yeah, like, like you had said, I mean, he, he walked in, the, the meeting was underway, uh, and he was part of it on zoom and just didn't know his camera was on. And I think, you know, you and I, I would venture to say that that is something everyone is perpetually scared of happening. It's like worst case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, he, you know, he explained after the fact cam that he just returned from a jog and that he was changing his clothes in his office. Um, you know, and also the, the Zoom feed here, this was an internal parliamentary feed of, of the virtual proceedings in the House of Commons. So that's important because it was only visible to the members themselves and to staffers who were participating. So, you know, I mean, given that it was only the members and staffers that had sort of caught the faux pas, I mean, I think, you know, he initially thought that the whole thing might just blow over. Well, no such luck, Cam, because it turns out that someone participating in the meeting thought that it would be a good idea to take a screenshot um, of Amos while he was naked. And of course, that screenshot was subsequently leaked on the socials and, you know, a viral nightmare very, very quickly emerged. I think it's so funny that he thought this would just blow over. I mean, be live in reality here. I mean, I think if anyone sees this happen, it's an immediate, like, holy F, this is happening, and I'm taking a screenshot, I'm going to share it. That's not a good thing to do. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but when you've got that many people on a call, even if it's not the public, I think it's pretty safe to assume that 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 sharing either the screenshot or the news itself would, would, would absolutely happen. There's no way all of these people aren't going to say anything. Well, funny you mention that because it's actually forbidden to share video or images from any non-public portions of parliamentary proceedings. So anyone who was participating in that meeting should have been aware of the parliamentary rules and either knew um, or chose to ignore those rules in taking the screenshot. And of course, it's it's even more complicated than that, Cam, because given that it was a nude photo that was taken without Amos's consent, you know, the act could very well be criminal in nature. Yes, uh, that's those are all good points. Uh, it's also not in the rules to smash the U.S. House of Congress's windows and uh, flood the Senate. But we know that people don't follow rules. <laughs> that's kind of what I'm getting at here. So, I yes. mean, even though th- there could have been all kinds of rules over this. I mean, there, there, there's rules that you can't take a picture on the MTR subway here. But obviously, if something crazy is happening, people are going to take pictures. It's just human nature. And I think that's kind of kind of what happened here. And, and it is interesting, though, because you say that, you know, w- the way that this was done, that person who normally would have been just whomever uh, may, may get into some serious trouble. Well, yeah. And, and look, Cam, and, and I, I take your point, but we're not talking about Joe Public on the MTR snapping a photo and in, in, in contravention of, you know, MTR rules. And we're talking about elected officials and the staffers that work for them. Um, I mean, they should be held to a higher standard. There should be, you know, uh, we, we should expect more from a code of conduct. And in fact, there was a code of conduct in place and policies and procedures to 
prevent this sort of thing from happening. You so, know, yeah, I take your point. Yeah. That somebody might have tried to capture it. Um, I guess, but you know, actually I want to linger on this just for a second because uh, like everything you're saying is, is obviously, is obviously right in terms of the rules that are in place and who was on the call. But I think where and I was just having a conversation with somebody on this the other day, it's our expectations that are often not aligned with reality. You're right. We should expect our elected officials to behave this way and their assistants to behave this way. But I think expecting them to do so is probably, unfortunately, asking too much. Um, because I, I just think, I mean, the Jeffrey Tubin situation was was quite different. But I, I think it's just anytime something, I mean, you got to remember these people sort of, they're, they're, a lot of their days are routines. And anytime something like this happens, it's a, it's a big gossip point. Even if something happened in a, in a private meeting inside of a company in the boardroom, um, you know, if it's something crazy that gets leaked out sometimes with evidence, it's not supposed to. Uh, but I, this is where I just think it's human nature. And I think those rules will help possibly prosecute this person. Um, but I think if it happened again, probably the same thing would happen again. Yeah. Um, you're probably right. <laughs> I mean, it obviously we, we, it's not even something we have to have an academic debate on because mm -hmm. we know what happened. I mean, somebody contra contravened the rules. They circulated the photo, um, knowingly that, uh, that they probably shouldn't have been doing so. So yeah, I mean, this isn't even a hypothetical. We know, we know how this played out. I mean, you know, Amos for his part, Cam, he, he, immediately address the issue. And I wanted to read you the his Twitter statement because I was sort of curious to get your take on it. Um, this, this was the quote. He said, I made a really unfortunate mistake today and obviously I'm embarrassed by it. My camera was accidentally left on as I changed into work clothes after going for a jog. I sincerely apologize to all my colleagues in the house. It was an honest mistake and it won't happen again. What do you think, Cam? Um, not, not, well, it's not bad. I think he could have put a little more feeling into it. What was the very first part, Ewan? Can you read the first part again? Yeah, he said, I made a really unfortunate mistake today, and obviously I'm embarrassed by it. That's the opening sentence. Yeah, I think that lacks, uh, it, it lacks something. I, I mean, I think I, I would have preferred him to say something along the lines of, you know, I'm mortified by what happened today. Uh, you know, something that, because embarrassed, I mean, it could be mispronouncing a, a state leader's wife at dinner, right? Like, like that's an embarrassment. I mean, to me, this is, this, I mean, it's embarrassing clearly, but it's also so much larger in terms of magnitude. And I think maybe a little more recognizing how how big and, and, and embarrassing this was might have helped a little bit. It's, it seems like it's okay. I, I can't say something in there is wrong, but it just seems to lack something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I, I think, I mean, he's, he's obviously spoken further, um, since then, but what's sort of interesting is the, the turn in the story because the story and very, very strategically, I suspect, um, largely driven by people in, in your profession cam has focused on, um, the breach of parliamentary rules in circulating the photo and has seemed to sort of dance over the fact that, um, you know, he had been caught changing during, uh, during a meeting in the first place. I think that's obviously very, very wise from his perspective strategically and from the, from the party's perspective strategically, um, to sort of try and, and, and push it over to, 
to focus on, you know, the dissemination of the photo, which wasn't supposed to be disseminated in the first place. Right. Yeah. I, to me, there's kind of two, two parts to this, obviously there's the, the actual thing that happened, which is him changing with the camera on and him not knowing, I mean, I do think that this scares a lot of people, to be honest. Like I was on a Zoom call just a couple of days ago and I realized the person had never used Zoom. Um, There's a lot of people, more than we think, uh, who really struggle using computers. And I think a lot of people uh, are, they admit it and they come out and say they need some help. And then I think there is a huge number of people who say they do get it, but they don't. And I, to me, that's kind of the the, the dangerous one because people don't want to seem stupid or they don't want to seem like they're out of date. And so, you know, you know, they manage to do the most important things, open and save a Word document, get on a Zoom call, etc. But knowing whether your camera is off or on is just like, I mean, it's so important. It's so like I would rather lose a long Word document that I'd written than have something like this happen. Right. I mean. I just think it's so critical. The lesson here for everybody is to just pay attention. If you've got, even if you've got a, you know, one of the Amazon echoes in your room or in the living room that has a camera in it, or your TVs, TVs sometimes have cameras built in. I mean, there's cameras everywhere. And I think people need to be a lot more aware of it. So that's the first part. But then there's the second part, which is, you know, what to do with it, what to do about it now. And yeah, if I were him and I was advising him, I for sure would be trying to, go after the person that shared them because you're right. That was a big violation of, of the rules and of protocol. And um, that should be treated very seriously. No question. Yeah. You know, and I think him, what's, what's sort of interesting about this story is the public has for the most part been very supportive of, of his position, which, you know, is markedly different say than what happened with Jeffrey Tubin. Yes. But um, a, a, a yeah. lot of people that have been critical of Amos have tried to draw a correlation and say, well, this is the same. Oh, Canada's, you know, a lot. I saw, saw tweets said, ah, Canada's Jeffrey Tubin. They're totally, act- totally different. I mean, cause Jeffrey Tubin was masturbating. So yeah, that is all that. I mean, that's a whole other realm to me than somebody who was changing and happened to be naked for a bit. Right. I mean, yeah, <laughs> to I, me, the orders, com- yeah, they're not at all the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I compl- and I completely agree with you. And well, I mean, and, and frankly, the, the public seems to agree as well. I mean, I saw a number of tweets, for example, one, one, a mother who chimed in and said, look, you know, welcome Welcome to business life during a global pandemic, right? She said, if, if I had my camera on for every call, um, you know, people would see my children running, running all over the house, piles of laundry, dogs barking, all kinds of other things. I mean, we're all trying to do our best here. Um, and really, let's, you know, it was a mistake. Let's cut people some slack. And I think to your point, Cam, um, your earlier point about, you know, look, people are still rightly or wrongly trying to navigate how to use a lot of this technology. And I think that is a fair point. Now, is that, is that a, an excuse? Well, no, but I'm, you know, I think, look, the guy owned up to the mistake. Um, it, and I, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of a, a more traditional employment scenario and what would happen, right? Cause of course there have been calls for him to resign and would an employer likely terminate an employee for, for doing this? Mm-hmm. I've had people ask me that question. And the answer is, I mean, it depends, it depends entirely. Um, as we've talked about before on the show, Cam, I mean, an employer 
can terminate an employee <clears throat> for any reason or, or no reason, provided they give them reasonable notice, um, at least in the province of Ontario. So, you know, what what does that what does that mean? Would they let him go under these circumstances? I don't know. I mean, if he was a good employee, you know, and you chalk it up to an honest mistake and, you know, he came forward yeah. with a mea culpa immediately. Um, I don't know that that would necessarily be sending the best message to your employees either. Right. Um, you need to you need to be sympathetic to what employees are going through and working remotely right now. And I think this is one of those considerations. Yeah, I think of this so much differently, I guess. I mean, because I mean, he, he made a mistake uh, and it's a mistake that almost anyone can imagine themselves making. And thus there is a, a layer of understanding there. And I, I think that's where that comes from. And and even, I mean, you're the employment lawyer, but if I was his boss, obviously I would sit down and talk with him about being more careful and how to, how to, how to do these things. I don't think I would have to talk to him. I think he probably is mortified by this. I think he's going to be very careful from now on, but at the end of the day, it was a mistake and not, I mean, to me, a guy masturbating on camera during a meeting is a, is a creepy kind of somewhat aggressive behavior in that setting. And I, so that's a lot different to me. And um, you know, he, he, the act that, that Jeffrey Tubin was doing, I assume was on purpose. <laughs> it was that the, uh, the camera, uh, it, he didn't know the camera could see him. And I don't know, I, I, you know, as hard as I break this down, I think they are kind of similar in a way, but it, it just seems like the, 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 you know, the MPs case is more innocent in a way. And I think that's why there's more public understanding of it. Yeah. I think I, I completely agree with you, Cam. I think you're bang on and they are different. Um, and, and I mean, look, it, it, whenever you read these stories, I sort of hope on some level that it's an opportunity for the public at large to yes. educate themselves, yeah. right? And to be more cautious, to be more discerning um, when engaging with a lot of these remote platforms that we're all heavily reliant upon now. Yeah. And we've seen this in other ways. Like we've seen people try and, you know, direct message somebody on Twitter, but they're actually tweeting the messages. You know, that's a, that's a common one. People have a hard time sort of distinguishing between which is which or how to send one or the other. Um, so this, this kind of thing happens, I think a lot. It's unfortunate in this case that he happened to be naked. Um, but, but it is, you know, it is interesting. You and like for, for HR departments out there, I mean, maybe there does need to be some sort of onboarding process where this is kind of standard because, you know, at a lot of places I've worked, HR will tell you about the communications guidelines or policy, which is, you know, don't talk to reporters. If you're approached by a reporter, refer it to the comms team. Um, be careful what you post online. Don't mention the company, you know, in a, in a negative light. Like there's, a, there's clearly sort of staff rules around it, but maybe there also needs to be a little bit of education around just, yeah, using cameras, using Zoom, um, what to be aware of, how to tell if your camera's on or off or something. I mean, this might seem really simple and unnecessary to a lot of people, but I suspect that a lot of employees would find a lot of value in something like that. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're bang on a lot of employers are and HR departments are revamping policies and procedure manuals precisely to address these kinds of things. But of course, you know, they're doing this on the fly, right. In, yeah. in real time. Um, 
as as we're all learning about this. So it's not as though you sort of have a group of of individuals who are coming with some level of expertise to these situations because we're all sort of starting from scratch in that regard. Um, and I think that that's important to keep in mind and that this is a learning period for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we will get there, but it's, it's going to take a little bit a little bit more time. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. We talked on episode 48 about AstraZeneca's vaccine. And the fact that, you know, some of the people who had taken the vaccine in Europe had developed blood clots uh, and how that was impacting public trust in AstraZeneca's vaccine. And it was even uh, suspended for a time as well. Now, as I'm sure you're aware, Ewan, uh, something similar has happened to Johnson & Johnson in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was a vaccine that I think... Caught people's attention because it's the only one right now that is a single dose vaccine. There's not a follow up or a booster shot that's necessary. So I think, you know, a lot of people had talked about this one being the one that they wanted to get. And, you know, there was a, a, a poll done before this happened. And, you know, the trust in Johnson and Johnson's vaccine was, you know, 52%. 52% of those polled inside the United States felt that the vaccine was safe. Uh, but by Wednesday last week, uh, you know, when the blood clot story emerged, um, that fell to 37 percent. And that, that's a that's a meaningful shift in a short period of time. It's understandable, obviously, considering, you know, the news around it. Um, but it did get me thinking about this a bit more because I, you know, I, I don't want to go through Johnson and Johnson specifically so much today, though we, we will look at that, but there's a bigger picture here. It's not just about what Johnson and Johnson is doing or not doing. There's an issue of vaccines themselves and trust itself that is impacting these vaccines and these companies that are bringing out the vaccines that I think kind of needs to be addressed. But first, before I do that, you know, the uncertainty over, over Johnson & Johnson, uh, it's not uncommon. I mean, I mentioned the AstraZeneca. Last week also, Ewan, we learned that the Chinese vaccine, so the one that they've been rolling out is called Sinovac. And um, China has never published any studies on Sinovac. There's been almost no information, but they've rolled out a nationwide uh, vaccination program using this vaccine. Well, the head of China's CDC, so there's a Chinese Center for Disease Control, came out last week and said actually a week ago, and said that the effectiveness of Chinese vaccines is not high. And this was... <laughs> is, it, is that the, the, the medical opinion, not high? We didn't get any sort of statistical analysis, just that it's not high? He, he said this, you know, as the head of the CDC, which is quite shocking. Um, and it, was, it came up during that, that conference that the, the, the effective rate is around 51 or 52%. Which ah, okay. is substantially lower, um, you know, than the than the Western vaccines. What was interesting is the next day, this CDC had had to walk his comments back. I'm sure he got in some trouble with the government, and you know had to pull that back. But I, you know, 
it, it raised more questions again around the issue of trust. And, you know, here in Hong Kong, it was also reported just over the last couple of months that, you know, there's real resistance to, uh, to this vaccine here as well. You know, just 37% of people in Hong Kong indicated in January that they wanted to get any vaccine at all. There's just a complete lack of trust around this. So I think, you know, when we're in this situation where we're fighting COVID and these vaccines are rolling out that haven't gone through the traditional testing and approval channels, it's been sped up. And also just kind of confusion about who's getting what and how do you take it and how often people do feel a little bit reluctant to jump in on this. So anyway, when the Johnson and Johnson, uh, their vaccine was suspended in the U S they did issue a statement. You and I will read this and you can tell me what you think of this one. So here's what they posted to their website. I'll just read the first uh, paragraph, which is a couple of sentences. The safety and well-being of the people who use our products is our number one priority. We are aware of an extremely rare disorder involving people with blood clots in combination with low platelets in a small number of individuals who have received our COVID-19 vaccine. The United States Centers for Disease Control and Food and Drug Administration are reviewing data involving six reported U.S. cases out of more than 6.8 million doses administered. Out of an abundance of caution, the CDC and FDA have recommended a pause in the use of our vaccine. Thoughts? Um. I mean, not bad. I, I like the opening sentence sort of addressing, you know, yep. what's, what's our number one priority yep. here. You, you've got to put that out front and center. They're, they're successful in that. I think it was also wise to address the very, very, very low um, numbers that we're talking about here in terms of, you know, likelihood that this could be a problem. Um, but look, I, I think here, here's the problem, right, Cam? And this is sort of consistent. I mean, I mean, I'm sure you recall living here and and seeing some of those American pharma commercials mm -hmm. that we get, right, for a particular yeah. drug where you see sort of people running through an open meadow and yeah. in this beautiful, serene yeah. setting. Or and then, of course, on a they path. start talking about all of these terrible, bizarre potential side effects of the drug because they're legally bound to do so. Um, and that never really leaves you with a, a, a good, a good feeling mm -hmm. by the end of it. Um, and I, you know, that, that's sort of my thought here as well, that anytime you have to sort of, there's no good way to sort of put that kind of information mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. As soon as you have, have to use things like blood clots and low platelets, people are going to be scratching their heads. They're going to be concerned regardless of how, you know, um, how low <laughs> the possibility of, of that being an issue for them is. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think you really nailed this, you and actually, I liked the first sentence, you know, I, I kind of came into this when I worked at the MTR, which again is the subway system here. I can't, can't believe they've come up twice on this podcast, but um, you know, when you're operating a, a public train network that people rely on to get to work, to go shopping, to see their friends, to see their family, you have to make security or safety uh, number one, right? And in any business like that, when we saw this with United Airlines um, and obviously, you know, the, these, these uh, pharmaceutical companies, that has to always be their first message. And then I think, you know, the second part here, and, you know, I've been in situations, not obviously with a vaccine, but in similar PR situations where 
Like I guarantee you with Johnson and Johnson, when, when, when the vaccine program was suspended, they were probably quite frustrated and angry about that because they'll sit there and say, look, we did all this research. We did these tests. We did this testing. You know, there's been 6.8, almost 7 million doses. And we have six people with blood clots. Like, other other medication has a much bigger issue usually with these kinds of side effects. And I can see them saying this is ridiculous. Like it's fine, but you can't come out and say that, you know? So yeah. like the, the one thing you can never do as a company is appear to be defensive. And so I think they did write this pretty well um, because they did say safety off the top and then in just a kind of a neutral way, then said, you know, we're aware of an extremely rare disorder, you know, involving people with blood clots. And again, in a small number of individuals. So they kind of emphasized that twice. Um, and then they said, again, are reviewing six uh, cases out of more than 6.8 million doses. So there's a third mention again of just how rare this is. Um, and I think, you know, the term out of an abundance of caution, I think I've used this phrase in the past. I think it might be way overused now. <laughs> I wonder if it's going to go away, but it's, it's, it, you know, it, it really is uh, a good descriptor. It's, it's basically a way to say like, we think this is absolutely fine, but just in case, you know, something crazy happens, we're, we're, we're suspending it anyway. So I, I thought it did a pretty good job of, of hitting those those messages. And that's really what companies have to do in this situation, because I'm sure they yeah. feel yeah a bit angry about the accusations. Yeah. And I don't I don't mind out of a, out of an abundance of caution as well. Cam, I, I, I take your point. It has become somewhat overused. But given the context where we're we're trying to put forward a bunch of you know, medical and statistical information, I think it's not a bad idea to drop some sort of common parlance in there that people can relate to and are familiar with, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think this still works. I mean, there's other, other sort of phrases or cliches that kind of, kind of wear out over time. Um, this one is very popular. It's come up a lot in the, in the pandemic, in fact, because a lot of businesses are making decisions sort of out of an abundance of caution. So it's turned up a, a lot more in the last year. But I mean, the question here, you know, is like, like, why is this Johnson and Johnson problem so damaging? And, you know, I really was thinking about this um, earlier today. And, and I think it is because it is, it is tied up or swept up amid so many other issues that affect this perception like for number one i mean there's obviously uh sort of the anti-vaxxer movement you know in the united states and elsewhere too who are naturally you know quite skeptical of vaccines to begin with so i mean th there is a there is a, a large segment of people i would i would submit you know that, ha that have these feelings off the top but then second is you know like i said these vaccines were were put together quickly under abnormal circumstances and with potentially massive profits. So the incentives are to cut corners here, right? And I think people are aware of that. And I've had many people tell me that the fact that these vaccines were rushed really concerns them. Another one, you and also is just like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's medical information that people often don't understand to begin with. Like you were talking about, you know, the side effects that are listed at the end of a commercial. I mean, the chances of a lot of those are infinitesimally small, but they, they nonetheless list them, list them there because they have to, it's a requirement. 
but I wonder if the public is taking in information the way they should, because there's not a lot of sophisticated medical consumers out there. And well, look, yeah. I, I think if there's one thing we can say with 100% certainty, Cameron, um, and it's part of the reason why this podcast exists is the majority of people aren't taking in information <laughs> all. the way that they probably should. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we, we, we just don't do that. It's not how we consume information anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. I, you know, a good parallel with this a little bit, I think, is the um, the Boeing 737 MAX. Um, I mean, by all accounts, it did go through testing. It, it, it was approved. It had done many, many flights, but there was a legitimate flaw there. But if you were to board a 737 MAX, the overwhelming chances are you're going to land safely even before the the update, right? But there was a concern there. And this has come up a lot. It's very hard for people to assess that level of risk because you know, you, you hear of the 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 you know the crashes related to these aircraft. And yet your your impression is don't get on. Like don't get on. Um, and that's probably not accurate. Uh, but but we, we we can't work in sort of this nuance. It's either good or or bad or safe or unsafe. And if anything seems to be unclear or confusing or complicated or with people with a bunch of different points of view, people naturally pull back from that. They stand back and go, "This I don't feel comfortable here. And it's probably a bunch of factors that make them feel that way, but it makes them reluctant to to engage or to take a vaccine in this case. Yeah, well, I mean, I also wonder how many people have run to their doctors to try and determine if they have low platelet counts. I mean, this was probably something that no one had really turned their minds to. Um, and all of a sudden, they, well, what what does that mean? What does it mean to have a low platelet count? Do I have a low platelet count? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought, what, what, like, what, if I was at Johnson & Johnson, what would I recommend? And like I've said on this show before, I think when you're in the crisis, it's too late. Like your goal now is just to get past this crisis, right? I mean, the idea is that you engage uh, in, a, in a genuine way with consumers for a long period of time. So when the crisis comes, you have an established relationship where there's some trust and you can communicate. But if you start now, it's too late. But they can start now for the next crisis. And I think this is one area where I really would recommend a lot of content developed by either Johnson and Johnson or an agency explanatory content. I, you know, I think if there is an opportunity to over a long period of time, explain, you know, what is the process for developing a vaccine? How does it happen? Who's involved? Where does it go to go through normal approvals? How many people look at it? How big are tests? pools. Um, this kind of thing could actually be broken down into a campaign or you could have people speaking about this, but you would want to get people out there because you, you, you want an educated public because if you have an educated public, then they understand what you're saying. And yeah, it would be better if, I mean, these companies don't want to necessarily put out education campaigns, but in these industries, it helps a lot. And again, it's not a perfect example, but you know, when I was at the MTR and we had to close some of the lines overnight and there were a lot of complaints about that saying like, well, you know, no other big city closes, closes these lines overnight. What, what are you doing? And we say, well, it's a track replacement. And they say, well, how, how complicated is that? Can't, you know? And so we actually went out overnight one night with a camera crew 
and did a little kind of mini documentary over what's involved with a track replacement. And that's, it's a technical thing. You're dealing with rail and, and signaling systems and all kinds of things that people have no idea how they work. But when you see it, when you see sort of the sausage being made, there were a lot of people who said, oh, so now, like I get why you do this. And I can see how careful you are being with safety. Um, and it, it, it helps them judge your communications in other areas because none of this is going to happen overnight. You, you, you can't educate people overnight. You can't make them trust you overnight. You can't be reputable overnight. It's a long process, but you've got to get started. And I think in industries like this, education is just so important. Yeah, you know what? You make a great point about the visual medium there, Cam, right? Particularly in the space in which we consume information and the way that we don't consume information, mm -hmm. you know, and in, in the example you gave, if you, if it was to be a, uh, you know, a, a written statement that was a page or two long in, in very succinct and clear language describing the process of a track replacement. I mean, I think we both know the, the number of people that would take the time to read it is, is slim to nil, but if you can cut a 30 second video where they can see what the process looks like people will engage with that right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. they they will engage with that vi that visual medium in a way that they're not necessarily going to engage with in the written form yeah infographic here this is a perfect situation for an infographic because you can have on one side here's what the normal procedures are like to get a vaccine approved and on the left here's you know what we've done for this covid19 vaccine and you can take a look at it and like i assume that I mean, obviously, if they really have cut serious corners, that's a bigger business problem. Um, I assume they have not, that what they've done has been upfront and it's been rushed. I mean, obviously, they can't do everything, but I know they have done large tests still. And it would be good to see that spelled out, you know? Um, and, and I think this helps people then talk to each other about it. Um, it just promotes more understanding. And at the same time, it's building a little bit more credibility and trust with your own company. And it's, it's not going to be one video or one infographic, but, but on these subjects, I think, especially with these pharmaceutical companies, there, there's so much that's opaque about them and breaking down that wall a little bit would be really, really big. I think it'd be very, very effective for them. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Um, I mean, public perception of big pharma um, probably isn't great, right? Um, thinking these sort of behemoth like companies that are are making billions and billions of dollars, and you know, I think the assumption, generally speaking, is among a lot of people that they're prepared to put profit ahead of safety and you know, that's, that's really not necessarily the case. In fact, their business mm -hmm. model is really only sustainable. Um, if in fact the, the pharmaceuticals that they produce are safe for public consumption. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is the very definition of the, uh, of the industry. It has to be safe. Um, but they don't necessarily do the best job in, in marketing. And I think your you know, your, your whole point about, a better education um, dissemination about how some of these drugs work, how they're developed would be really, really useful to the public at large. And maybe this is a learning opportunity for big pharma, right? They're under the mm -hmm. microscope in a way 
that they haven't been for some time. Um, so why not use it as an opportunity to try and try and turn a page and how they how they market the message? If we could go back two years in time and say, like, in the next couple of years, people are going to be talking about the differences between the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Pfizer BioNTech and the Sinovac and the Johnson and Johnson. I mean, people just wouldn't believe it. Um, but but here we are, and people are forming views around these things without much information at all. You know, it's mostly mostly on gut feeling. The last thing I want to say though here Ewan is is the fact that you know the the these vaccines are being swallowed up in these other currents right um I, I mentioned it off the top there's there's lower trust in institutions generally in governments um you know there's the anti-vaxxers in the U.S. and here here in Hong Kong obviously there's after the protests in 2019 and the the national security law there's there's zero trust in government here and because there's no trust in government you know, the government set up this vaccination drive. People are, they don't want to do it. And and that's unfortunate for companies like Johnson & Johnson. I mean, they're not here in Hong Kong, um, but but Pfizer and BioNTech are, and, uh, and there may be some others. And it's no fault of them, right? Like they show up here, they want to do the vaccine, but they're, they're caught up in this other issue around trust in government. And I think through education, you want to try and pull your brand out of that kind of vulnerability and try and build a more direct relationship. And that's a very hard thing to do as a pharmaceutical company. I get it. Believe me, I, I, I get it. This isn't easy. Um, but, but I do think the process has got to start and the benefits of it are, are great. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PRN Law Podcast. What have you got, Ewan? Well, Cam, somewhat apropos, actually, of what you were just talking about. Uh, this was an article I read earlier uh, earlier in the week in Forbes, and it is Meet the 40 New Billionaires Who Got Rich Fighting COVID-19. Oh, really? Uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know if you saw this no. piece, Cam, but, um, you know, it, 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 it's it's exactly what you might think in some regards anyway. That E-commerce uh, people? Well, and big pharma, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. In, in companies developing vaccines. So, we, you know, we have uh, Moderna CEO, Stefan Bansell, um, BioNTech co-founder, really, really sort of interesting breakdown of just how much money was there to be made if you happen to be working in the in the right industry over the mm -hmm. course of the, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I have kind of followed this news generally. Um, you know, you, you've seen actually the company I work for, uh, Tencent, has done very well because, you know, we, we, we provide, you know, distance learning options and remote work options and there's a lot of entertainment things and and companies like ours or amazon or or some others have have done very very well the video game companies have done very well and i think the delivery services have, have done somewhat somewhat well too um but but for a lot of people this has been been really devastating and i, th I think the big problem out of all of this is the fact that yeah people like jeff bezos or 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 apple and some of these other companies have just they've made so much money as a result of covid that it it's a bit off-putting to people and I, I think that is kind of going to be a, a bit of an issue. Um, yeah, absolutely. The big winner here, though, mm -hmm. uh, Cam, is actually from your neck of the woods. So the 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 top, the oh, top earner. It? Do you want to do you want to take a guess? Uh, Hong Kong citizenship. But it's a new it's a new billionaire, right? Or yeah, yeah. So this is Jian Chuan Winner Medical. Really, I have never even heard of it. 
Okay, yeah, Lee, Lee, uh, Lee, Genjuan, and family. Net worth six point eight billion dollars. Um, how is billions? How, how is masks? How is Lee spelled? Is it L I or L E E? L I. Ah, it's mainland. That's how you can tell the difference, people. <laughs> so he may have a Hong Kong passport, but uh, he's mainland Chinese. Then, well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. What do you got, Cam? Um, I have something that I, I read a, a, a while, well, a couple of weeks ago, but it, but it's uh, something I've thought about a bit. It's a it's a an article in the New Yorker, and it's headlined "America Ruined My Name for Me." It is written by a Vietnamese American woman. She was actually brought to the U.S. as a young girl, and she was given the kind of traditional. Vietnamese given name of Bic, kind of pronounced B I C, like the the pen, but it is spelt B I C H. And she talks about her roll call every year in school and friends. And when she gives them her given name, the reaction that she's had to face for her entire life. And I think when when we talk about immigrants trying to to settle into Western countries in particular, though it does also go the other way sometimes, sometimes this is overlooked by the the local people in these Western countries. That that I mean, if you if if, if a girl gives this name, there's almost certainly going to be some ridicule at some point and i think people don't think much of it like they they forget about it five or ten minutes later but the damage this can do to a person over a long period of time and i think i think this is just a it's a it's an eye-opening kind of also heartbreaking look at what she's had to deal with and her parents had no sympathy about it whatsoever they said you know we've given you a name that's a beautiful name it's a proud name in vietnam and you know you should be proud of it which yes is great uh, but the reality is it was it was a big problem for her throughout her life and um i i do recommend it it's a it's a touching read i, I read it quite quickly just because it was hard for me to put it down it was it was it's really well done um so i'll put a link to that as well we all take a certain sense of pride in in our names and where they come from and and how we we, got, we how we got them in the first place and to have to constantly be defensive about that or try to justify it must be a really, really just horrific and awful experience day in and day out. But um, nevertheless, there you go. I went uh, for a long walk today in a new neighborhood in Hong Kong and uh, I passed uh, an old colonial apartment building and uh, the name of the building was Ewan's Court, spelt exactly the way that your first name is spelt. Oh, wow. I have a court. uh, Fantastic. Your court is, and you're a lawyer also. Um, Yeah. You'll have to come and uh, come and visit. Anything else you want to add, Ewan, before uh, I head to bed and you enjoy? That's right. No, I I think that's it, Cam. Again, congrats. Mm -hmm. One year. Yeah. Um, Congratulations. One year in the books. Yeah, it certainly doesn't. It doesn't uh, doesn't feel like it. Maybe it really because doesn't. Nothing has really changed as we talked about off the top between when we started and where we are today. Um, yeah. Other than you getting your shot tomorrow, so that's that's pretty cool. That's kind of yeah. a turning. It's turning the, of the tide. It's the first one. Uh, I'll talk about it next week. It's the second one I'm worried about. That one's coming in May, but um, yeah, it's a start. I'll be happy. I'll be relieved when that's done. 
Um, so yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us again on the show. Uh, we will begin year two next week. So, so don't miss it. Uh, you can subscribe to the PR and law podcast in whatever podcast app you like. Uh, you can visit our website at PR and dot law. That's the, actually the official website name, but you can also go to prlawpodcast.com. They go to the same place. Uh, YouTube and SoundCloud, you can listen to our, our show there and subscribe on those channels if you prefer. And yeah, we're on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.